0: So um, if you were here last Sunday, you will remember that we were looking at um, Matthew 6, 19 to 24, about storing up treasures, not storing up treasures on earth um, and not allowing anything other than God to master us. And David's talked about that um, quite a lot this morning. Thanks, David, for that. Um, And that passage is mainly concerned with the way money and possessions can deceive us into relying on them. And, yeah, we went off piste and talked about the masters as well. So what I'd like to do this morning um, is to read the whole section again from verse 19, because really today's section is a continuation of last week. And uh, I've asked Karen to read it so you get someone else's voice other than mine. So, Karen, when you're good to go, can you unmute and go for that, please?
1: Thank you. Thank you, Nita. Treasures in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink
0: Thanks, Karen. So the real essence, I think, of today's passage in this last part of Matthew 6 is actually the same as the first bit of Matthew 6 and also the middle bit of Matthew 6. I think it's just that Jesus puts it in a slightly different way each time. And I've sort of summarised it like this. Your internal habits, internal thinking and internal priorities are vitally important. If you deliberately arrange those around an audience of one and don't give permission to anything which wants to conflict with him, then your external behavior will always be a pleasure to God and it will be pretty hard to go wrong. And this is great news because we can change our internal thinking and priorities anytime we want to. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will develop new and lasting habits. So let's unpack the passage a little bit, starting with verse 25. And the first word is therefore. Uh, and the, uh, that's an interesting word. And Rob always says, when you see a therefore in scripture, you need to ask yourself, what is it therefore. sure he wasn't the first one to say that so what is this therefore therefore well i have two possibilities for you um one is that it refers back to the masters in the previous verse it comes straight afterwards and we have to remember that that this narrative would have originally been just one long narrative the chapters and verses and section headings were put in later so um verse 24 comes straight before verse 25 and and I think Jesus could well be referring to that and I just want to highlight something that I didn't get around to saying last week in verse 24 when God says when Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money actually my Bible has the word mammon instead of money but when I looked at all the other translations they all said money so I I didn't refer to it uh, last week but I just want to explain quickly that that word mammon comes from the name of we think a Syrian god um, it, it he was their god of wealth and that word mammon has a very strong flavor of, of a greedy pursuit or a running after wealth or possessions and Jesus's listeners would have been very familiar with that idea which would have been why he used that word so going back to masters I think that the therefore might refer to this You cannot serve two masters because your life will become a series of resolving the resulting conflicts of loyalty. Most especially, you can't serve God and be mastered by running after the things which this life provides. Therefore, verse 25, don't be ruled by worry or anxiety over everyday things like food and clothing, because that's also like running after the things which this life provides. So that's one way of looking at it. And here's here's another way. Jesus could be referring to our treasure in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth because it corrupts your heart and distracts you away from your father. Instead, lay up treasure in heaven. If you can crack this, you will do so well. And with that mindset, you therefore don't have to be anxious about the practical everyday things whether you have an excess, just enough, or a lack, because your heart and mind is rooted in what is heavenly. God knows what you need, and he'll supply it. I think that is my personal favourite, and you can pick yours when we discuss it afterwards if there's time, or you might have a different idea. And it might not even matter what the therefore refers to, so I don't want to be rigid about it, and I'm certainly not going to get into a stew about it, because the main point of this passage is not to worry. So I'm not going to worry. Uh, And the reason we don't need to worry is that our Father in Heaven values us. He knows what we need and he will give us what we need. Don't worry, don't worry, and don't worry. Jesus says it three times in this little section. And if you've ever been around an anxious person, you'll know that it's just not relaxing, is it? You're easily aware of their worries and stresses. They're just underneath the surface. And conversely, I know a a good handful of people whose default is not to worry. And I love spending time with them. It's fun. It's freeing. And if there was ever a concerning or even a life-threatening situation, somehow those people would make you feel safe. Jesus was at pains to say to his disciples, don't worry, relax. Your Father in heaven has got this. Don't worry. He bookended this section, actually, says don't worry at the beginning and don't worry at the end, and threw one into the middle as well. Now, just to be clear, don't worry doesn't mean pay no attention to things that have a significant effect on us. No one is suggesting that we stick our fingers in our ears and say, la, 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 Jesus will take care of everything. I don't need to be concerned about anything at all. In fact, it is both sensible and biblically recommended that we approach life with wisdom and with grounded thinking. We manage our resources such as we have faithfully. And we might even put things aside because we know they will be useful to someone at some stage, but we entrust them to God for that purpose, not for ourselves. In Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't build a tower unless you know you've got the resources to do it. Don't go to war with a powerful king unless you know you can defeat him. Consider it carefully. Uh, And in that passage, Jesus is actually talking about counting the cost of becoming his disciple. But the principle is the same. It's good and right to give sober and careful attention to things that have a considerable impact on your life, both now and in the future. So that's not what Jesus defines as worry or anxiety. And it also doesn't mean that we're not allowed to care about people or things. If you have children of any age, or if you're involved with looking after people in some way, you will know that there's often a juggling act between caring about them and worrying about them. When does caring become worrying? And I'm hoping that that will become apparent as I continue. There are a few clues coming up. So listen on. But the kind of anxiety that Jesus is talking about is actually more like fretting, if you know what I mean by that. The nagging kind, the kind that lies heavily on you, the kind that has nothing to do with faith and that takes away your peace. And our culture is full of devices which press the anxiety buttons in us, don't you think? Organizations and companies know very well that they'll make a lot of money if we can be persuaded to be bothered about whether we look good, eat well, drive a cool car, have the newest phone, gaming device, whatever. Even the, our being socially and environmentally responsible can be accessed via anxiety. If guilt doesn't work, anxiety will do. If we fret over what to do about our excess goods or our lack of them, or if we fret about anything at all—looks, clothes, cars, people's opinions, etc.—and actually, let's not ignore what we're going through now: risk of carrying catching coronavirus. Will I still know how to make friends when this is all over? When will I get a vaccine? Is the vaccine even trustworthy? I really need a holiday this year. I haven't got a job. What will happen to my education and career? My dad's really unwell. What if there's COVID-21? Like all of these things, whatever it is, if you're a Christian and your internal thoughts have any of those elements of fixation or fear or lack of faith, that's the kind of anxiety that Jesus is talking about. It's an issue of faith. Either we have faith in a God who will sustain us, or we don't. And let's be honest here. Right now, life is quite stressful for quite a lot of people, quite a lot of the time. And Jesus's answer now was, uh, sorry, say, yes, Jesus's answer now is the same as his answer was then. Don't worry, don't worry, and don't worry. Have faith in God who supplies all our needs according, according. To his riches, not according to ours. And there are two things about worry and anxiety which I think are actually destructive to the Christian life. The first is that they distract us away from what is important. And in the story of Martha and Mary in Luke 12 or 14, I can't remember, the issue is that Martha is distracted because she's worried and anxious. That's what Jesus says to her. The things on her mind were almost certainly not wrong, but the way she held them in her mind led to her being distracted and missing the purpose of having Jesus in her home. Yikes, <laughs> as Dennis Menis Menace will say. The second is that we fail to produce fruit, and that is about spiritual maturity. And that's serious. In the parable of the sower, which is also in Luke, we have four lots of seed. And the parable illustrates the importance of rooting and fruiting. And half of the seeds do grow deep, strong and healthy roots. But one lot find themselves strangled by thorns and cannot produce any fruit Uh, And if you're a gardener, from a gardener's perspective, that will be because they're expending so much energy trying to deal with the knock-on effect of being strangled that they don't have anything spare for the processes required to produce the actual fruit. And the three things that strangle the plant are the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, and the anxieties of this world. That's the seriousness of what Jesus is talking about. So let's go back to the passage. In this passage, the things that Jesus is talking about that causes anxiety are the practical needs we have, things to do with our life and our body, food, drink, clothing. Our life represents our physical needs, eating and drinking to sustain ourselves and maybe also eating and drinking well. And our body represents our need to be clothed. For the sake of modesty and practically, but maybe also, uh, sorry, practicality, and maybe also to look good. It sort of covers everything. And if there's anxiety associated with those things, it might be because we don't have enough for ourselves, or, and this is equally possible, we do have enough, but we don't have the right things to make us feel good, look good, or impress others. Verse 32 says... For the Gentiles run after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. And, and, you know, Jesus's point here is we don't need to run after things that God has already promised to provide. And he illustrates God's provision by drawing our attention to think about the birds and the flowers. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Birds are not able to produce food or store it. All they can do is look for it. They have to rely on food being available somewhere and somehow. God sustains them and he will sustain us. End of story. What about flowers? They're even more helpless than birds. When it comes to their clothing, and I assume we're talking here about petals and things, They can't work to produce it. They they just need to get on with being a flower, doing flowery things like cozying up with bees or whatever. And God clothes them even more beautifully than the richest king in the history of Israel. And I bet he wore some good designer clothing. And dare I say this, in God's opinion, His way of providing both sustenance and beauty is way more glorifying to him than our own efforts could ever be. Birds and flowers allow his majesty and magnificence to be displayed, and so should we. He gives every sparrow and field lily life and dignity and knows every single one that ever lived and ever will live, however transient that is. He knows how many seeds or chicks they will produce and what will happen to each one of those. He knows the biology of their cells and organs in precise detail and every chemical reaction that takes place to make them function. He knows every encounter that they will have with beast or man every single day. And what's more, he knew it before the beginning of time. Isn't he just the best? How can we not be in awe of our joyful, creative, omniscient provider? How can we fail to worship the one who knows the beginning and the end of every creature on earth and whose brilliance of mind is able to speak both atoms and galaxies into existence? And why, oh why, would we choose worry when he says he will never leave us or forsake us? And just to press that point home, here's some advice from the writer of Hebrews. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? We've had some of that this morning already, I think. So back to worry. I mean, I don't really want to, but anyway, let's go back to worry. <laughs> Uh, Worry and anxiety very often stem from some kind of fear. And I want to take just a short journey along that road for a minute. Underneath most fears is usually a lie. Somewhere we have believed in a lie. That lie has generated fear. And the fear characterizes our outward behavior. And if you read the story about the temptation of man in um, Genesis 3, I think it is, If you read that from the perspective of lies and fear, it actually illustrates what I've just said really well. When it comes to tripping up the followers of Jesus, Satan's lies are very often to do with what God must think about us or what he might do to us. He's trying to unsettle us by bringing doubt into our thinking. And and again, I don't have time to explore the fear and lies thing more fully, but let's at least address the things in this passage. that that Jesus might be talking about. If you have a fear of never having enough, the lie might be that God doesn't care enough to provide for you, or that you're tied to living the same way that your parents and grandparents did. Or for some reason, perhaps he thinks you don't deserve it. Maybe you have to pay for your bad behaviour or past choices. If it's a fear of not having the right kind of food or drink or or clothing or whatever for the sake of your reputation, what's the lie here? That you're validated only by the admiration of others, maybe. That everything God did through Jesus for the purpose of bringing us into his family doesn't include you. That his lavish grace and deep love doesn't apply to you or can't fill the gaping hole in your soul. And even storing things up just in case is about fear, just in case of what? In case God doesn't turn up, isn't able to do what he promises in his word, changes his mind, doesn't even exist. We need to disable the fears in our lives. Once we render fear inoperative, it is easier to see if there's a lie and squash that dead. So how do we disable fear? Now, let's travel back to the time of the Exodus. The Israelites have escaped the Egyptians, crossed the Red Sea in triumph, and a few weeks later, there begins to be a scarcity of food. They were afraid of starving to death in the desert, and so God supplied them with special bread called manna. we have already heard that. It appeared on the ground every day, and they gathered it each morning, exactly enough for their own needs and their family's needs and they were told to do the same every day. Gather enough for that day, don't keep any for the following day because it will smell and turn rotten. And the only time that they were allowed to gather extra was the day before the Sabbath and that was to allow for the requirement of rest on the Sabbath. So I was thinking about this story the other day and I, I asked myself a question. Why didn't God supply the manna to them in weekly batches? This is my efficient mind working now, okay? Because it would have been much more efficient. They could have baked all kinds of goods with it for the coming week. And we know it was certainly possible for it to last more than a day without rotting because God arranged for that to happen every Sabbath. And, and actually, later in their travels, He also asked Aaron to put like a portion of it in a jar and keep it in the tabernacle as a kind of um, like a memory to, to what had happened. So there's no issue with like best before dates or anything like that. God was quite capable of keeping the manna one day to the next, one week to the next. But it was God's intention for them to go out every morning to collect a day's worth of manna, and they did this for 40 years. So why a daily gathering? Well, here's what I think was God's answer to my question. I'm not saying it's the only answer, okay? The Israelites had lived as slaves in Egypt for several generations, like 400 years or something. And their slave masters were cruel and ruled them by fear and punishment. There was no kindness or concern for their welfare or compassion for any slave who failed to deliver their quota of work for that day. And the Israelites grew grew used to working hard for the sake of the enrichment of the Egyptians and by the time Moses came on the scene they were well entrenched in that mentality. They had no concept of a generous master who was entirely concerned about their well-being and their future. They didn't even really get Moses's nature, let alone the God who was fulfilling a promise he made to Abraham well over 400 years earlier. Even after they escaped from Egypt, anytime something went wrong for them, their first reaction was that God must have brought them into the desert to kill them, starve them to death or whatever. Even though he'd rescued them from a terrible life, and they'd witnessed miracles of deliverance and sung songs about God leading them to a new land. That was their default. It was fear based on lies, based on a lifetime of bad experience. And I believe that one of the reasons God required the Israelites to gather their food each day, just enough for that day, was to teach them to trust in him and his provision. They needed a daily reminder. And that, and that would have been... in direct opposition to their desire to like hoard it and store it up and keep it because that's a natural mindset of someone who's used to hard labor and cruel masters. If there's kindness shown one day, it cannot be relied on for the next day. You can't trust a master. But God wanted to retrain their minds and teach them that they could trust him. It was a necessary daily discipline to help them understand his nature a generous and loving God, faithful, true and compassionate, who treasured them as his possession and who who would always sustain him if they put their faith in him. So I believe one of the keys to eliminating fear and lies from our life is trust. It is really hard to fear someone if you trust them. Trust works best when you know the person well. In this case, knowing the nature and character of God, our Father in heaven. That's a vitally important ingredient if you're deciding whether you can trust someone. We need to know what kind of person they are, what their track record is like, and if they can be relied on. Of course, we use our present knowledge and observation of that person, but if we are wise, we will also find out what makes them tick, how they think, what their motives are, and it's the same with God. What's the truth about him? Why should he be trusted? Is there any evidence that he's trustworthy? What things move him? What's he interested in? What does he like? We are very well equipped to answer some of these questions. We can talk to people who know him. We can listen to songs about him. But best of all, we have our Bibles. And in there, you can not only find out what other people have discovered about him. You can also find out what he says about himself. And I couldn't resist picking out some truths about God to remind us why we can trust him. So if you just want to listen to them, most of them are from Psalms. He is minutely interested in you. The detail of your daily life and your concerns. He never leaves or forsakes you, whatever you're dealing with. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger rich in love, good to everyone. He sees you as the apple of his eye and hides you under his wings. He is our steadfast and solid rock, our foundation, our refuge, our fortress, even when we are confronted with disease, destruction or death. He answers us, helps us, supports us, protects us. He is our shepherd, our restorer, our comforter. He is, strong, he is our strong and secure place, even if armies besiege us and war breaks out against us. He receives us, even when our parents reject us. His angels surround us. He's close to those who are broken-hearted and those whose spirits are crushed. Even if I fall into a pit of mud, he rescues me and puts me on a firm foundation. He knew everything about your body, your life and your future when you were only the size of a poppy seed. He is good and his love endures forever. He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good good things and breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. And he does not treat us according to what our sins deserve. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He is rich in mercy. He made us alive and adopted us into his family. He has seated us in heavenly places with Jesus and kept an inheritance for us in heaven. And he nailed our massive overdraft of sin to the cross and cancelled it. This is our God. This is the one in whom we can trust with no fear of inconstancy or bad temper or fickle behaviour. I think it's Bill Johnson, isn't it, who says God is always in a good mood. So guys, if we're stuck in fear or believing lies or even flirting them with them a little bit, we need to grow the trust that we do have in God by feeding it with biblical truth, because no liar can stand up to that. So I'm moving on to the last couple of verses. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. There's so much that could be said here about how to seek the kingdom, and Jesus talks about the kingdom in many different places, conversations with his disciples, parables. But I think actually what he's doing here is simply reminding us to store up our treasure in heaven and focus on the things that are rooted in heaven God's kingdom is rooted in heaven and he's almost like he's saying by putting your faith and trust only in him you are laying up treasure in heaven and out of that God will provide for you it's an interesting idea it's centering ourselves on God sitting at his feet doing everything for an audience of one Now, if I was Matthew, I would have ended right there and left the next bit out because I think that's a great place to sit and meditate. But Jesus says this to finish with in verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And maybe the reason he did that is like the bookend thing. You know, he starts with don't worry and he wants to put don't worry at the end. He wants to encourage us not to bring future concerns into today's thinking based on the truth that God will supply what we need as we need it today belongs to today tomorrow belongs to tomorrow what happens tomorrow stays in tomorrow and, and although the next phrase each day has enough trouble of his own is, is a bit odd I think I, I do actually quite like it and whenever I read it in my mind I go back to give us this day our daily bread which comes earlier in the chapter about prayer. Um, because I think there's a similar principle here. Each day has its own unique concerns and encounters. As we come to him daily, like the Israelites when they gather their daily manna, he will supply what we need for that day. Whether it's physical need or spiritual food, he gives us bread from heaven each day and the next and the next and the next. Fresh every morning. Sufficient for the day, according to our personal need. Bread from heaven, indeed. Okay, so I just, I just wanted to read um, the thing I started with, which I, I thought was, was really the summary of chapter six. Um, I think that's a good background before we come to the summary. Our internal habits... Internal thinking and internal priorities are vitally important. If we deliberately arrange those around an audience of one and don't give permission to anything which wants to conflict with him, then our external behavior will always be a pleasure to God. And we will find it pretty hard to go wrong. And with that as the kind of backdrop, Um, here's a summary uh, of today's message, which is don't waste your earthly life worrying about things that God has promised to provide for you. Anxiety often stems from fear and fear is often the result of a lie. And finally, build up your trust in God using biblical truths. These kill fear and lies and put your focus on him. Okay, and I'd like to read, uh, uh, just to end, a quote uh, from a guy called Dallas Willard, who is my new best friend. Uh, And I know he's a good friend to at least two other people in the church because they've got the same book. Um, And he's much more eloquent than me. And here's what he says. Soberly, when our trust is in heavenly things which are absolutely beyond risk or threat, and we've learned from good sources, including our own experiences, that those things are definitely there, anxiety is just groundless and pointless. It occurs only as a hangover of bad habits formed when we were trusting in things like human approval and wealth that were certain to let us down. Now our strategy should be one of resolute rejection of worry, while we concentrate on the future in hope and with prayer and on the past with thanksgiving.